Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 2, Episode 46. Last week, I wrapped up the history of Moab. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm covering both the history of Ammon and Kadesh. So let's get started. Ammon was an Iron Age nation east of the Jordan River, between the valleys of the Arnon and Jabbok rivers. It was located north of Moab, the subject of the past two episodes, and in what is now the country of Jordan. The largest city in the country was Rabbah, sometimes called Rabath Ammon, spelled with an O in the last syllable. Not surprisingly, this city was located at the same place as the modern city of Ammon, spelled with an A, and also currently Jordan's capital. The Ammonites inhabited the northern central Jordanian plateau, from the latter part of the 2nd millennium BC to the middle of the 1st millennium BC. The Ammonites are first mentioned in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 19, verse 37. Like I covered last week, this passage describes how they descended from Ben-Ami, who was Lot's son, and his grandson. In Hebrew, the name Ben-Ami literally translates to the phrase, son of my people. Ben-Ami was also Moab's brother. The narrative surrounding the lineage of the two brothers has traditionally been considered literal fact, but some biblical scholars now interpret it as recording the irony, probably popular at the time, in which the Israelites expressed their dislike of the Moabites and the Ammonites. Interestingly, it is unlikely that the ancient Israelites would have directed such dislike towards Lot himself. The Ammonites settled east of the Jordan River, initially invading the territory inhabited by the Repium, driving them out of the area. Their territory at first included land from the Jordan River to the area considered wilderness and from the River Jabbok south to the River Arnon. Once again, this is hard to visualize, so I'll post a map on the podcast's Facebook page. Curiously, some believe the land to have been previously inhabited by giants. The Ammonites called the Goliaths, pardon the premature pun, Zomzomzims. It is believed that just prior to the Israelite exodus from Egypt, the Amorites, who lived west of the Jordan, under King Shion, invaded and then occupied a large portion of the territory of Moab and Ammon. The Ammonites were driven from the lush agricultural lands near the Jordan and took refuge in the mountains and valleys to the east. The invasion of the Amorites essentially split the Ammonites from the Moabites. Throughout the Old Testament, the Ammonites and Israelites are essentially mutual antagonists. After the Exodus, the Israelites were prohibited by the Ammonites from passing through their lands. Later, the Ammonites partnered with Eglon of Moab and attacked Israel. Compounding the adversarial relationship, the Ammonites maintained their claim to part of the Jordan Valley, even after it was occupied by the Israelites. I will cover later how the Israelites laid claim to the area. In the area of Japhetha, the Ammonites occupied the lands east of the Jordan River and started to invade the Israelite lands west of the river. Jephthah was a judge over Israel in the Book of Judges for a period of about six years, as found in chapter 12 of the book. According to the book of Judges, he lived in Gilead and was a member of either the tribe of Manasseh or the tribe of Gad. It is believed he lived in the 11th century BC. 
Jephthah became a leader in resisting the incursions of the Ammonites. The constant harassment by the Ammonites did have a probably unforeseen consequence. The Israelite tribes east of the Jordan ultimately united under Saul to resist these invasions. King Nahash of Ammon, who lived at the turn of the first millennium BC, lay siege to the region of Jabesh-Gilead. Jabesh-Gilead was an ancient town referred to in four books of the Old Testament. Specifically, Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, and 1st Chronicles. Some biblical scholars believe that it was located east of the Jordan River, in the vicinity of the Wadai Yebis, located on what is now the east bank of the Jordan River, pretty much midway between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. Back to Saul. The continued Ammonite harassment eventually led to alliance between Saul and the Israeli tribes. Saul then led a force that relieved the siege and defeated the Ammonite king. This victory then led to the unification of the kingdom of Israel. It was during King David's reign that the Ammonites humiliated David's messengers. The passage, found in 1 Chronicles chapter 19, is so chock-full of history it's worthy of a lengthy quote from the New Revised Standard Version. When King Nahash of the Ammonites died and his son succeeded him, David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun son of Nahash, for his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent messengers to console him concerning his father. When David's servants came to Hanun in the land of the Ammonites to console him, the officials of the Ammonites said to Hanun, Do you think because David has sent consolers to you that he is honoring your father? Have not his servants come to you to search and to overthrow and to spy out the land? So Hanan seized David's servants, shaved them, cut off their garments in the middle at their hips, and sent them away, and they departed. When David was told about the men, he sent messengers to them, for they felt greatly humiliated. The king said, Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then return. When the Ammonites saw that they had made themselves odious to David, Hanan and the Ammonites sent 1,000 talents of silver to hire chariots and cavalry from Mesopotamia, from Aram Mahak, and from Zobah. They hired 32,000 chariots, and the king of Makkah with his army, who came and camped before Medaba. And the Ammonites were mustered from their cities and came to battle. When David heard of it, he sent Joab and all of the army of his warriors. The Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the city, and the kings who had come were by themselves in the open country. When Joab saw that the line of battle was set against him both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the picked men of Israel and arrayed them against the Arameans. The rest of his troops he put in the charge of his brother Abishiah, and they were arrayed against the Ammonites. He said, If the Arameans are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will help you. Be strong, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. May the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the troops who were with him advanced toward the Arameans for battle, and they fled before him. When the Ammonites saw that the Arameans fled, they likewise fled before Abishiah, Joab's brother, and entered the city. Then Joab came to Jerusalem. But when the Arameans saw that they had been defeated by Israel, 
they sent messengers and brought out the Arameans who were beyond the Euphrates, with Shaphak, the commander of the army of Hadazar, at their head. When David was informed, he gathered all Israel together, crossed the Jordan, came to them, and drew up his forces against them. When David set the battle in array against the Arameans, they fought with him. The Arameans fled before Israel, and David killed 7,000 Aramean charioteers and 40,000 foot soldiers, and also killed Shaphak, the commander of the army. When the servants of Hadadazar saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with David and became subject to him. So the Arameans were not willing to help the Ammonites anymore. I would say so. In essence, the Ammonites hired the Aramean armies, now performing as mercenaries to attack Israel. The battle led to the Israeli army laying siege to the Ammonite capital of Rabbah. The siege lasted a year. The war concluded with all the Ammonite cities being conquered and plundered, and the inhabitants being killed or being enslaved by King David. Other passages in the Old Testament provide more insight into their history and society. The Ammonites' continued aggression towards Judah is shown in their joining the Chaldeans to destroy it, as seen in 2 Kings chapter 24. Their brutality is condemned by the prophet Amos in the first chapter of the book bearing the same name. Finally, their continued defeats are all attested to by Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Zechariah. Both 2 Kings and Jeremiah record their assassination of Gedaliah, who at the time was the Babylonian governor of the Yehud province, formerly known as Judah. In addition, both 2 Kings and 1 Chronicles record how they may have regained their old territory when Tilgath-Pileser enslaved the Israelites east of the Jordan. In Nehemiah chapter 4, Tobiah, who was an Ammonite, allied with Sanballat, a Samaritan leader and official of the Achaemenid Empire, to oppose Nehemiah. The Ammonites also united with the Syrians in their wars with the Maccabees, but were defeated by Judas. And no, not the Judas of the New Testament. In both 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles, Naamah was an Ammonite. She was the only wife of King Solomon to be mentioned by name in the Hebrew Bible as having born a child. And this was no small feat considering Solomon had 700 wives. She was also the mother of Solomon's successor, Rehoboam. As for the history outside of the Old Testament, in the 8th century BC, Ammon was finally subjugated by Assyria, which at the time was ruled by Tilgath-Pileser. After this, they were a tributary to Assyria. Ammon did maintain a pseudo-independence from the Assyrian Empire, but only because it paid a regular tribute to the Assyrian king. This was while other nearby kingdoms were being raided or conquered. Later, in 853 BC, the Arameans from Damascus occupied what formerly had been Israeli territory east of the Jordan River. At that time, the Ammonites allied with Hedazar of the Arameans. The Ammonites sent about 1,000 troops to Syria to aid the Arameans in their fight against the Assyrians at Karkar. This was during the reign of Shalmaneser III of Assyria. The entire coalition was of 11 city-states, and also included Eluhenia, the king of Hamath, Ahab, the king of Israel, Gindibu, the king of the Arabs, and other rulers. The battle was essentially a draw, and Shalmaneser III ended up fighting these same nations several times in the following years. 
Eventually, this resulted in the occupation of the Levant, Arabia, and Israel by the Assyrian Empire. This was not without incident, though. The Ammonites joined in the general uprising that took place under Sennacherib in the early 7th century BC, but came back into the fold during the reign of Esarhaddon a few years later. A time later, the Ammonite king, Amenadab I, was among the tributaries who paid dearly for the Assyrian ruler Esarbenipal's war in Arabia. There were a couple of other Ammonite kings who are known through archaeological findings. These include Barakal, who ruled sometime around 620 BC. There is also Hiselel, who is mentioned in an inscription on a bottle at Tel Saran, Jordan, along with his son, King Amenadab II, who reigned around 600 BC. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, the Ammonites, Moabites, and Menunim formed a coalition against Jesopath of Judah. The chapter walks through the very verbose explanation of the preparations undertaken by the tribe of Judah, and is worthy of a read. I'll let you do that one on your own. Because of the preparations, the coalition allied against Judah was thrown into confusion, with their armies slaughtering each other. That's why it's called the Fog of War. Those that survived were then captured by Jehoshaphat's troops and forced to pay tribute in the form of livestock, goods, and clothing. Apparently, the Ammonites presented a serious problem to the Pharisees because of many marriages between Israelite men and Ammonite, as well as Moabite women during the time of Nehemiah. This was covered in depth last week, but for a quick review, the Jewish men had married women of the various nations without the women converting. In the Jewish faith, religion is carried by the mother, so the children of the relationship were not born Jewish. This was a minor controversy about the legitimacy of David's claim to royalty, since his great-grandmother on his father's side was Ruth, who herself was a Moabite. To me at least, though, this is a non-issue, as he would have gotten his fate from his mother, not his father. During the Old Testament era, the Ammonite economy was like that of its neighbors and primarily based on agricultural and livestock herding. The large majority of the population lived in small villages surrounded by farms and pastures. Similar to Moab, and like I covered in more detail last week, Amman benefited from numerous natural resources, in their case, sandstone and limestone. It was also positioned on the so-called King's Highway, the trade route which connected Egypt with Mesopotamia, Syria, and Asia Minor. As with the Edomites, Moabites, and Syrians, the flow of trade along this route brought with it significant prosperity. Beginning around 950 BC, Amman began to show increasing wealth, mostly due to agriculture and trade, and used the wealth to construct a chain of fortresses. Later, during the era of Persian and early Greek rule, there is little in the historic record concerning the Ammonites. Their name appears, however, during the time of the Maccabees, essentially in the 2nd century BC. In that period, the Ammonites, with some other ethnic groups from the Jordan River Valley, resisted the influence of the upstart Jewish rebellion against the Greeks led by Judas Maccabeus. The last recording of the Ammonites in the historical record was in Justin Martyr's dialogue with Tripo in the 2nd century AD where it is stated that they were still a sizable group. As for their language, Ammonite is a dead Canaanite dialect, 
Only pieces of their language survive, primarily in a 9th century BC inscription found at the Amman Citadel. It has also been found on a few inscribed pieces of pottery. Probably the most insightful find was in 1972 when the excavation of a site known as Tel Saran in northwest Amman uncovered an inscribed bronze bottle. The bottle itself is about 4 inches or 10 centimeters tall. Scientific inquiry has shown that the inscription dates to 600 BC and later concluded that it was a poem written in the Ammonite language. The poem talks about a drinking song, which roughly translates to Gate of Amman in Amman Citadel, to the vineyard and the orchard, or shall I be left behind and destroyed? He who says this rejoices and be happy, that life is long, and I shall inflame myself with it and be ruined? No, it shall make me glad, and bring joy for many days and long years. Who would have thought that a drinking song would be found on a bottle? And that last line is not part of the poem, just my interjection. Back to the language. The small sample size of archaeological finds leads to a few conclusions. But it is thought that the language was very similar to Biblical Hebrew, but possibly with the Aramaic influence. Ammonite was first described as a separate language in 1970, by Italian historian and linguist Giovanni Garbini. After the publication of Garbini's findings, several inscriptions that had been previously identified as Hebrew, Phoenician, or Aramaic were reclassified to Ammonite. This was mostly as a result of the similarity to the Ammonite inscriptions. But, according to Glottolog, Ammonite was not a distinct language from Hebrew. You gotta love a good fight among academics. So that's the history of Ammon which would make for a somewhat short episode. And, a couple of weeks ago, I teased that at some point in the future I would cover the history of Kadesh. The Kadesh mentioned in Genesis chapters 14 and 16. This is probably just as good of a point as any, and is what is known concerning the Syrian city outside of the Old Testament is somewhat limited and would not be enough for a standalone episode. So let's get started. Kadesh was an ancient city of the Levant, located somewhere near the source of the Orontes River. It was also of some significance during the Late Bronze Age, and is mentioned in the Armana letters. It is probably best known as the site of the Battle of Kadesh between the Hittite and Egyptian empires in the 13th century BC. Kadesh is identified with the ruins at Tel Nabi Mend, about 15 miles or 24 kilometers south of Homs, adjacent to the modern-day Syrian village of Tel al-Nabi Mando. But, other researchers identify Kadesh with the city of Kadiatis, mentioned by Herodotus, while even others claim it was in Gaza. But for the purposes of this episode, I'm going to run with the Tel Nabi Mend theory. This location was first occupied during the Chalcolithic period, aka the Pre-Bronze Age. Between about 1500 and 1300 BC, Kadesh came under control of the growing Hittite Empire. It was also the objective of numerous military campaigns by the pharaohs of the 18th dynasty of Egypt. Kadesh is first noted as one of two Canaanite cities, with the other being Megadido, that led a coalition of city-states opposing the conquest of the Jordan Valley by Pharaoh Tutmosis III. It is thought that their efforts were directed by the Mitanni, since they were Egypt's primary rival in the region. 
but Kadesh was defeated at the Battle of Megiddo, which then led to the expansion of Egyptian control over southern Syria. Like I teased before, much of this history is known through the Armana letters, which I covered many episodes ago. As a refresher, these letters were between the ruler of Kadesh and the Pharaoh, and were written in Akkadian. The city of Kadesh alternated for many years between Hittite and Egyptian control. At first, Pharaohs Tutankhamun and Horemheb tried, but both failed to recapture the city from the Hittites. It was finally captured by the Pharaoh Seti I in 1306 BC, during his campaign to Syria. He eventually entered the city together with his son, Ramses II, and erected a victory stele at the site. But his success was only temporary, for as soon as he returned to Egypt, the Hittite king, Mercilius II, recaptured the city. Like I said before, Kadesh is best known as the location of one of the most documented battles of the ancient era. The Battle of Kadesh was fought in the 13th century BC by the two superpowers of the era, the Egyptians and the Hittites. Backing up a bit, before the battle, Kadesh had been an Egyptian vassal state for about 150 years. But Kadesh eventually rebelled and the Hittites seized the opportunity. In response to the Hittite control and the threat of a southward expansion, the Egyptian pharaoh Ramses II mounted a determined military response, capturing the coastal state of Amaru. In 1274 BC, in the fifth year of Ramses' rule, he led a large force of chariots and infantry on a trek of 1,000 miles, or about 1,600 kilometers, to retake the walled city of Kadesh. In the Battle of Kadesh, the two empires fought in what is widely regarded as the largest chariot-on-chariot battle in history, with forces thought to include some 5,000 chariots on each side. It must have been a sight to behold. The next year, the Hittites pushed south to recapture Amaru, while the Egyptians maneuvered north to continue their expansion into Syria. The inhabitants of the city of Kadesh, as a defensive measure, dug a canal from the river to a stream south of town, essentially transforming their city into an island. Then, Hittite spies convinced the Egyptians that the Hittites were further away than they really were, and the Hittites surprised the Egyptians in their own camp. The Egyptian army was rescued by the timely arrival of a supporting force from the coastal city of Amaru. Ramses II was able to recover momentum and the two armies withdrew in a stalemate, both claiming victory. Despite all this, Kadesh and Amaru remained under Hittite control. And while the Hittite army continued its conquest southward, as far as the territory around Damascus, the subsequent stalemate between Egypt and Hittites led to what is now believed to be one of the earliest surviving international peace treaties, signed several decades later by Ramses II and his Hittite counterpart, Hetasili III. Kadesh then evaporated from history after it was destroyed by the invading Sea Peoples near the beginning of the 12th century BC. But Greek artifacts have been found in the upper levels of the mound, and the summit is still occupied to this day. During the Byzantine period, more significant occupation is demonstrated by extensive remains at the base of the tell. It was probably occupied through the Islamic period, as the mound was named after a local Muslim prophet, specifically Nebi Mind. And that is the history of Kadesh. 
and the episode for this week. Join me next week when I'll start the history of the Philistines as found in Genesis chapter 20. You don't want to miss it. This week, and like I've requested numerous times before, I hope you will go to iTunes or wherever you receive the podcast from and leave a positive review. I know I've made this request several times and some of you have probably even tuned me out, but I trust that more of you will take me up on it. And just remember, it may not do anything for you, but it does help others to find the podcast. As always, you can find more information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page. And if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe to it so you get the episodes as soon as they are released. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. Thank you.